0: Well, today we are continuing in the book of Numbers in our In the Wilderness series. And uh, we have come to the day you've all been waiting for, the second longest chapter in the Bible. So I've heard 89 verses of repetition. I know this is an exciting thing. Uh, Probably if you've done your homework, how many of you have done your homework and read, read ahead getting ready for it, right? Now, be honest with yourself, how many of you cheated in this chapter and skipped over some of the repetition as you were reading it? It's a temptation, isn't it? And yet, there's a reason for every single word that God has included in the scriptures. So we want to make sure that we are faithful to learning and teaching it, and as we do, you'll be relieved that I will not be reading the whole thing with you right now. I will trust you to be sensible grown-ups. But as we begin, I'd like to draw your attention just to set the stage to Matthew chapter 6. We will be in number 7, but let's begin with Matthew 6. When you get to Matthew 6, we'll be reading verses 19 to 24. Actually, 19, we'll just do 19 to 21. There is nothing that does my heart more good than to hear those pages turning out there. So keep it up, keep it up. And if you're feeling bad about maybe being a little slow getting there, don't. It just extends my pleasure in hearing the pages turn. That's a good thing. These are the words of Jesus himself Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, but where thieves break in and steal and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, from there, let's go to number 7. We'll read the first 11 verses together, and then we'll jump toward the end. When Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed and consecrated it and all its furnishings. He also anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of families, who were the tribal leaders in charge of those who were counted, made offerings. They brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered carts and twelve oxen, an ox from each leader and a cart from every two. These they presented before the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the work at the tent of meeting. Give them to the Levites, as each man's work requires. So Moses took the carts and oxen and gave them to the Levites. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites, as their work required. And he gave four carts and eight oxen to the Merarites, as their work required. They were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. But Moses did not give any to the Kohathites, because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. When the altar was anointed, the leaders brought their offerings for its dedication and presented them before the altar. For the Lord had said to Moses, Each day one leader is to bring his offering for the dedication of the altar. Let's jump to verse 84. These were the offerings of the Israelite leaders for the dedication of the altar when it was anointed. Twelve silver plates, twelve silver sprinkling bowls, and twelve gold dishes. Each silver plate weighed 130 shekels and each sprinkling bowl 70 shekels. Altogether, the silver dishes weighed 2,400 shekels according to the sanctuary shekel. The twelve gold dishes, (coughs) excuse me, The 12 gold dishes filled with incense weighed 10 shekels each according to the sanctuary shekel. Altogether, the gold dishes weighed 120 shekels. The total number of animals for the burnt offering came to 12 young bulls, 12 rams, and 12 male lambs a year old together with their grain offering. 12 male goats were used for the sin offering. The total number of animals for the sacrifice of the fellowship offering came to 24 oxen, 60 rams, 60 male goats, and 60 male lambs a year old. These were the offerings for the dedication of the altar after it was anointed. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the covenant law. In this way, the Lord spoke to him. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, as we open your word and seek to be transformed by it, as it renews our mind and your spirit changes us from within, we do so longing to glorify you. Father, we want to know you, we want to know what you have to say to us. And so, in this passage that's so easy for our flesh to disregard, pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, to our spirit, that we might rejoice in your word, that we might recognize your law, your commands as more precious than silver or gold. You are a great God. Therefore, the world ought to shake and fear in your presence Your church needs to recognize who you are. And so often, we approach you casually. We approach you as if you're just another guy. One of us. Father, we thank you that you took on flesh in the person of the Son. That you lived among us. Died in our place rose from the grave in the person of the Son, and that you are with us, in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. But Father, protect us, guard us from ever approaching you lightly, empty-handed, disrespectfully. Father, we confess to you that we each have turned to our own way and gone astray. We have each fallen short of your glorious standard, both by our our nature that we inherit, by the things that we do and say and even think. We recognize that in our sinful actions and choices, some of these things we do without knowing in our ignorance, and others we do knowing full well what we're doing. Father, we seek your mercy for both. We thank you that in your mercy you sent your Son to take all of it, that you might dwell among a holy people, your church, made holy not by our actions but by yours. Lord, speak now. Speak beyond your servant, by your spirit, to your people, through your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we um, continue in the book of Numbers, um, so far we've seen that God requires his people to order every aspect of their lives around him, that those who belong to the Lord must worship and serve him on his terms, and that the presence of God requires the absence of sin. We learned that drawing close to God requires separating from the things of the flesh. Those concepts, as we have moved forward in this foundational early part of the book, lead us to today's core reality. That's simply this joyful giving invests God's people in God's priorities. Joyful giving invests God's people. In God's priorities. Now Chuck knows full well that this passage, this this chapter today was kind of a struggle for me in preparation. Uh, He said, okay, so where are you going with this? So I know what kind of a a psalm to to, uh, select for our opening Old Testament scripture. And I said, brother, I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know. What do I do with this? 89 verses of the same words over and over. What is it that the Lord is trying to say to us? I had to remind myself that Moses didn't write this for us. The Lord spoke through through Moses, through this for us but Moses was writing for his people then for God's people then. What was Moses saying to them? What is the context that we're looking at? Well, this chapter and the next two chapters here are a flashback. It's a little bit weird because as we look at at the Torah, these books are arranged mainly by theme, not so much by a strict chronology. They're not trying to say, okay, here it is. We're going to lay this out. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's there, but, but the point is to group it by thought so that those who are reading it see those connections. So in the book of Exodus, we see God leading his people out, beginning what he is about to do to take them to the promised land, establishing his law. He gives the Ten Commandments there and, and then presents some of the ceremonial law just to establish the tabernacle. And then in Leviticus, we kind of pause, we kind of you know have this... This still moment at the foot of Mount Sinai where we're going through the details of the law. There's some question, some debate among scholars as to whether that happened prior to where we are in uh, Leviticus or it happens uh, really at the end of chapter 7. I don't know that it matters. The point is that Moses is, is receiving the law from God and giving the law to the people. And now in Numbers... They're preparing to leave Sinai to go into the promised land, and they're going to have some struggles because of their sin. And so, God keeps his covenant. We've learned through this entire book, as we'll see, is the theme that despite the unfaithfulness of God's people, God remains faithful at all times. And all of us ought to say amen to that. Because God keeps us when we can't keep ourselves. God preserves us. He's faithful to His promises even when you and I blow it. And if we're honest, that's a daily occurrence. We need a faithful God, a covenant-keeping God. And that's exactly who He is. So now as we've gotten to this place, All of these things have have built together and and having uh, established these foundations to understand the rest of the book, now the Lord has Moses go back to to really right after Exodus 40. In Exodus 40, the last chapter of Exodus, there is this establishment, the building of the tabernacle. God's given them instructions. He's had people bring the the things that will be necessary, uh, and He provided the skill to be able to do it. So if you thought that spiritual gifts began in the New Testament, no spiritual gifts are happening in the book of Exodus. That's always been the way God operated. And... Then, in Leviticus chapters 8 and 9, we see that the priests, Aaron and his sons, are ordained and consecrated and they make sacrifices, all really prior to what we're reading here. And now we're going back. If they hadn't done that, if they hadn't made those sacrifices, then they wouldn't be able to stand in their place as priests to do the rest of these things that will be required here in this portion of Numbers. So uh, we're jumping back to that spot. The tabernacle's been set up. The priests have been ordained and consecrated. Now the people are bringing gifts for the dedication of the tabernacle, or as the message refers to it, the dwelling. This is the, the tabernacle or the tent, the temporary place where God will manifest His presence God being omniscient, but he manifests himself here, dwelling among his people. Previously dwelling outside the camp, now dwelling among his people. And he has arranged them around the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the dwelling, so that they are all facing him, arranging every aspect of their lives around the person and presence of God. And He fits them for battle because there will be battles as they go where God is taking them. That's still true today. Where it was true physically then, it is true spiritually now. We face spiritual battles every day on the route to where God is taking us. Again, this is a highly repetitive chapter but it's important for us to recognize that the repetition that is used here is emphasizing some things. Okay, So let's take a look at the part that we didn't read together, and we'll just read the first portion of it. We'll start with verse 12. The one who brought his offering on the first day was Nashon, son of Aminadab, of the tribe of Judah. Now let me stop there before we go anywhere else. I'm not going to spend a lot of time dwelling on this, but we should always take note of the preeminence of Judah in the kingdom of Israel. The tribe of Judah, which would produce the Messiah, has the prominence, it's the biggest, it's the first, it's the, you know, this is where we see God uh, bringing Jesus from interestingly all these guys that are mentioned as as the leaders of the tribes you really don't see them show up a whole lot we don't know a whole lot else about them except for this but these two dudes nashon and Amidadab, both show up in the genealogy of jesus when we get to the new testament Just be aware of that. Notice that God is not doing just some random thing when Jesus comes. It's always been His plan. It's always been what He's been constructing. God does not make mistakes. And He doesn't have a plan B. He does what He has always planned to do. And Jesus came because that was God's plan, His will. It's highly repetitive. So we see the the next 11 things repeating this with each different individual. Notice what they do here. The exact same words are going to follow 12 times. His offering was one silver plate weighing 130 shekels and one silver sprinkling bowl weighing 70 shekels, both according to the sanctuary shekel. That's the, the measuring of the weight that Tells how the value, essentially, of that silver or gold. Okay, One silver weight weighing 130 shekels. One silver sprinkling bowl weighing 70 shekels. Both, according to the sanctuary shekel, each filled with the finest flour mixed with olive oil as a grain offering. So it's not just the dishes. That's part of it. They are, are, are going to be used. But it's the offering that comes as well. The sacrifice that will be made. One gold dish weighing 10 shekels filled with incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering. Leviticus lays out the details of what these offerings are. We won't take time on that today, but it is significant. One male goat for a sin offering. Whenever you see that goat for a sin offering, keep in your mind the idea we'll see it we we see it in Leviticus and we'll see it later. Uh, that we'll we'll bring it up a little more specifically. Keep in mind the the term scapegoat, as the sin is put upon the goat. 17, and two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old to be sacrificed as a fellowship offering. Your translation may say a peace offering. This This was the offering of Nashon, son of Aminadab. And then he repeats it, and repeats it, and repeats it, and repeats it. That repetition is emphasizing some things. Not the least of which is this. All tribes, big or small, regardless of relative wealth. Judah's the biggest. You've got you know, smaller Benjamin. You've got the two half-tribes of Joseph, of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. They're all different. They're all going to have different size and relative wealth but they all brought the same offering. There are probably more things, but there are at least four things we need to get from that that this repetition emphasizes. One, all are invested. Every tribe, every person in the tribe, regardless of how big, regardless of who they are, all of God's people are invested together in the tabernacle. Second, all are equal. Doesn't matter if you're big or small, Rich or poor, everybody is equally invested in what God is doing. Third, the gifts reflect the reason for giving, not the givers. It's not about the person giving, it's about who they're giving it to and why. Right? This is about the value, the worth of God. Fourth, we need to recognize that the leaders represent the people. Now, we're not going to really dwell on that and what we're focusing on in our core reality, but it is an important reality for us to recognize, and we see this throughout the Scriptures. God deals with His people both individually and collectively, and He places people in a position of headship to represent the unit. And so we see these leaders representing the tribes. What the leader does, the tribe does. Even if every individual isn't a part of it, the responsibility for the tribe falls to the leader. So when the leader gives to the Lord, it is is credited to the entire unit. We see this in the family. We see this in the church. We see this even in in Aaron and Moses as they represent the people before God. It's crucial for us to recognize that the leaders represent the people. Now as we are uh, going through this Focusing on this idea of joyful giving, investing God's people and God's priorities, there are some things we need to get straight. Whenever we talk about giving, people get really confused. And that it's really important for us to straighten out some basic foundational elements because if we get this wrong, it has a very profound impact on us. And our relationship, or more specifically, our fellowship with God. We need to make sure we get it right. First off, notice this. God does not need our giving. God does not need our giving. I'm going to try hard not to talk a lot about this particular section, but just take you to some scriptures. You know I'm probably going to anyway, but... Turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Go to the center of your Bible, and 50 comes right after 49... go to 51 you went too far This is a psalm of Asaph most of our psalms that we're familiar with we we are attributed to David we usually think of the psalms as attributed to David this one is not from David it's from Asaph Here's what he says the mighty one God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Think for a moment of the songs that we sang earlier. Of the greatness of our God. To God be the glory, great things He has done. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Now jump to verse 7. The Lord says, listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings which are ever before me. What does that mean? It means they keep giving the sacrifices. He's not saying that that the complaint, that his testimony against his people is that they're not giving. They are giving. But notice what he says next. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Then he continues, right? He's he's testifying against them, not because they're not bringing, because they are. But he's saying, look, I don't need this stuff from you. And yet in verse 14 he says, sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. God doesn't need our sacrifice. We do. We need to give to God for our own sake. What's more, in reality, we can't ultimately give to God. C.S. Lewis told a little story, a little illustration that uh, ends with the punchline uh, that becomes a band name that you may recognize from, from the you know, 90s. As he tells of a, of a little boy who really wants to give a gift to his dad. But he doesn't have any money because he's a little boy. So he goes to dad and says, Dad, can I borrow six pence from you? The dad is excited to be able to give this to his son, to receive this gift that expresses the child's love. But Lewis points out how foolish of us to think that the father gains anything in the transaction because he gave him the six, six pence in the first place. So he's sixpence none the richer. The child gives out of love, but he's only giving what he receives from the father. With that in mind, turn to 1 Chronicles. If you're still in the Psalms, back up. If you get to Numbers, you backed up too far. I'm just going to back up a little bit to 1 Chronicles. When you find 1 Chronicles, look at chapter 29. Oh man, there's so much more I want to do here. I, I promise I will not have you read nearly as much on the next several points, but we've got to get this established in our hearts and in our minds. First Chronicles chapter 29. Take a look at the top of your page and double-check. Make sure you're not in 2 Chronicles or you'll be confused. The story that we see here is in uh, verses 1 to 22. We're not going to read that whole portion. But basically what has happened here is David wanted to build God a temple. God said, you can't build me a temple because you shed much blood in the land. A man of bloodshed is not building the temple. Uh, Your son Solomon will be a man of peace, and I will give peace to the kingdom on his watch. And so Solomon is to build the temple, but you can uh, prepare for it. You can can provide for it, all right? So David uh, calls the people together and says, look, I'm going to give an abundance of my wealth because this is important. I'm going to give all this stuff, not to boast about it, but to inspire the people. And he says, now who will give? Who will step up? And the people give of their time, of their labor, of their wealth, and they bring in all this vastness to the supply of the temple so that they can build this temple. David is awed by this. We'll pick up with verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name This is why we sing songs that remind us of the greatness of God before we talk about a passage that has to do with giving. It's not about checking a box that says, I need to give to God because that's my duty as a Christian. It's a matter of recognizing who He is, the infinite worth of our mighty, majestic God. David, as they're bringing this, gives thanks to God for the privilege of being able to give to God because God is everything. Notice what he says next. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. and We have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand. And all of it belongs to you. Sixpence, none the richer. I know, my God, that you test the heart. And are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel. Sorry, I got in a rhythm there. Keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever. And keep their hearts loyal to you and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed down, prostrating themselves before the Lord and the King. This passage think is really one of the keys to being able to understand what's happening in numbers and what must happen whenever God's people give to the Lord we're not giving him anything he hasn't already given us it's all his to begin with we're borrowing from him to give back to him so when we tithe I'd really love to discuss that but I don't think I have time When we give of our income as an act of worship, understand that the concept of the tithe is not first and foremost to provide funds to the church to do the work of God. That's a portion of it. We'll see that that idea play out here. But the idea of the tithe is to say this represents my dependence on God in much the same way the Sabbath does. I got Eight days of work i got to do this week. And I'm going to commit to doing it in six. And if I don't get it done, I don't get it done. But the seventh day, that that is set apart for God. Because I need to own my dependence on Him in my heart. God gives me everything that I have, therefore 100% of my income belongs to the Lord. I want to give back that 10%. To remind myself, to remind my heart as a token that this belongs to Him. And then I'm going to do everything I can with the other 90% to carry out His will, to live generously, because it's all His anyway. The idea is to remind ourselves of the value of our God and our dependence on Him. All right, so God does not need our giving. We get that part, right? Notice this. Giving does not earn God's favor. Giving does not earn God's favor. You don't have to turn there. You know this passage already Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, so that no one can boast. We don't buy salvation. It doesn't matter what the preacher on television tells you. We can't buy God's blessing so that if I give to this ministry, God's going to give to me. Kind of a a tit-for-tat, quid pro quo, you know, I'm going to buy my ticket to heaven by doing good things with my money. That ain't how it works, folks. We're saved by grace. And by grace alone. That's why in uh, Luke 10... When one of the uh, teachers of the law comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law say? You tell me. How do you read it? And he says, well, first and second commandment, the greatest commandments here, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Express that by loving others as you love yourself. Jesus says, you nailed it. That's right. You do this and you'll live. Nobody does that, by the way. That's kind of the problem. Nobody perfectly carries that out. But the guy trying to you know, justify himself, because he knows that his heart doesn't perfectly do that, says, well, you know, who's my neighbor? How, you know, if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, you know, give me the guidelines, Jesus. Who do I need to restrict this to? And Jesus says, there's no restriction. Let me, let me give you a parable, and you know the parable of the Good Samaritan, so we won't go over that. But Jesus gives him a picture of the outcast, the one who is who is ostracized, and while the people who are connected to the wounded man don't take care of him. This person from outside, the enemy, so to speak, does. This is the neighbor is the one who does what's needed to be done. Jesus could have said, you need to give Take your offerings to, into the temple. He could have said, you need to write a big check to the mission. You need to support Costa, uh, Costa Rica for Christ. You need to give Keith and Heather a big check and that'll get you into heaven. Folks, Amen. that will not get you into heaven. Amen. I'm all for you writing that check. But if you write it thinking that you're purchasing God's blessing, you are sadly mistaken. And you have received your reward in full. We give from the heart not to try to game God. Giving does not earn God's favor. It's by grace we're saved. Next notice, giving to God cannot replace living for God. Giving to God cannot replace living for God. 1 Samuel 15, 19-23. I'm not going to have you turn to there for the sake of time. You have it so you can read it on your own. King Saul has disobeyed God. God told him to to wipe out the people that they were conquering to kill them all and and, uh, burn up the stuff. And Saul didn't do it. He killed most of them. He let the king live as a a sign of respect to try to make things happen, right? And he... uh, You know, offered the the best of the animals to God, and yeah, then they kept some profit from the rest. And God said, "Nope, that's not going to work." And He sends Samuel to convict him about this. And when when Samuel does, Saul's like, "What? I did honor God. I did exactly what He said." So then, why do I hear these sheep bleeding over here? What's the noise? of animals that should have been already wiped out. And a crucial thing gets said in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15. He says to Saul, after Saul tries to excuse himself, but hey, we made this sacrifice, which he wasn't authorized to make, by the way. Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's the obedience that God wants. He wants the heart. That means more than the sacrifice of the bulls and the rams and the goats. It's not the giving. Keith Green, in a song by that very title, the opening line is, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. Understand that giving to God cannot replace living for God. I cannot supplant the need for holy living by thinking that I can just write a check, that I can do these things. And in my giving, that somehow makes up for it. God does not want our offerings. If our offerings are in the flesh, He wants our heart and what, to the extent that our giving is an, is an extension of that, a reflection of that, then it is acceptable to God. To the extent that we do it our way, on our terms, instead of living set apart for Him, God rejects our sacrifice. God does not need our giving. God does not uh, giving does not earn God's favor. Giving to God cannot replace living for God. Lastly, notice this. God values quality over quantity. God values quality over quantity. Unless we are confused about the meaning of this statement, understand that quality is about how you give, the state of your heart. God is much more interested in the state of your heart than the size of your check. Motives matter. Now, As as Keith will attest, the amount matters a little bit too, right? There's a lot in the amount. It's important that we give what we need to give, but that's ultimately not the main point. In case you're not sure about that, turn to Mark chapter 12. You can stay in Numbers, we'll be back. Go all the way to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, When you find Mark, we're going to look at chapter 12. Again, a familiar passage. There are a few other passages here you might want to read on your own time. We will not have time to see them today, but it's significant. We're going to start for our purposes here with verse 41. Mark 12 41 through the end of the chapter. An interesting thing happens here. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Boy, we could spend some time trying to figure that one out. What's he doing? That's kind of Is Jesus just being a creeper? You know, is he just sitting there spying on folks? Jesus has a very specific reason. He's watching this, and we're able to, in this account to see a principle. Notice what is said next. Many rich people threw in large amounts. How awesome it is to be able to give large amounts to the Lord. Verse 42, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. It's at this point, not, not when everybody's bringing in the big gifts, but it's at this point that Jesus calls the disciples to himself. Verse 43, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. That's literally not true. It's, Let me rephrase that so it's clearer. That's not literally true. It's true in the reality of it. It's true in the meaningful sense. Obviously, the bigger check is more than the smaller check, right? You put in a big offering, that's more than the little offering. What Jesus is saying is before God, what they gave is smaller than her giving her two mites. This tiny amount is huge to her and therefore it's huge to God. Because, as he says next, verse 44, they all gave out of their wealth. They gave from their abundance. They gave from what they had. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. There are a million different things she could have done with that. She has limited resources. But she took this little amount regardless of what anybody thought of her. It's entirely possible. Somebody saw her put that in and thought, why'd you even bother? What's two pennies going to do in the grand scheme of things? Who cares about your two pennies? And Jesus said, God cares more for that than for all the others put together. That's quality. Quality giving trumps quantity every time. Motives matter. Now don't misunderstand. Quantity is part of the quality. Right? In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul uh, tells the Corinthian church that that this generosity is important. Each one should give what they've settled in their heart to give. According to what you have. According to your ability, give. So if, if... Elon Musk throws in his two pennies. God's not smiling on that. You're just giving a little pittance of what matters to you, which means that all the rest matters more. I'm not trying to take a shot at Mr. Musk. I have never met the guy. But when you and I give out of our abundance in a way that doesn't hurt, that doesn't cost, what kind of giving is that? The quantity is part of the quality, according to your ability to give, according to the conviction that the Holy Spirit lays on your heart. Quality matters. And therefore, in that sense, and only in that sense, the quantity matters. God does not need your money, but He demands your all we must recognize that reality. God values quality over quantity. Okay, so now with these things in mind, we we understand uh, some of these misunderstandings about about giving. Let's get back to Numbers. All right, so as we... uh, How do I end up in Isaiah? Anyway, back to Numbers. What we're seeing here in this story, in this narrative, is that the people of God are bringing really two separate offerings. right? We saw in the first part that the leaders bring the oxen and the ox carts. Kind of a, you know, a strange thing in that it's separated. It doesn't seem real clear to me whether this is a, it's a free will offering. It doesn't say that God tells them to do it. It seems to imply, or at least we can infer from it, that this was something they agreed upon that was not required of God. Because the Lord says to Moses, accept these gifts from them for the work that needs to be done. Now if God had commanded them to do that, it seems unlikely that He would say, you need to accept these. But He says accept them, and He gives instructions to them. So He gives them to the Gershonites, the, the smaller portion. He gives them to the Merarites, the larger portion uh, <clears throat> And as they are doing that, excuse me, as they are doing that, um, he gives nothing to the Kohathites. Notice that the Kohathites have the job of taking care of the most holy things, the things that are actually used in the worship, in in the tabernacle itself. And they're not to even peek in to take a look at them. They get packed up by the priests and then the Kohathites carry them. Later on there will be some complaint that comes up. We'll, We'll deal with that when we get to it. But their job is to carry it on poles on their shoulders. It's not to be carried in an ox cart. They have a greater burden and a greater responsibility. Handling these most holy things is a greater privilege than anybody else gets. But with that privilege comes a greater burden in carrying it. They carry it on their shoulders, on these poles. They don't get to have the ox do the work. We mentioned earlier that leaders represent the people. There is a, there's a great burden on those who answer to God for the spiritual lives of others please pray for our overseers. Please pray for those who teach. Every one of our children's teachers, and if you think that's not the greatest responsibility and burden in this country, I I can't think of anything greater. You are laying a foundation with these children so that they can know God, so that they can grow as disciples. That is a serious charge. And we must honor them and pray for them because the burden is great. This is why we pray for our missionaries. As they go into various places, both domestically and abroad, they will inevitably be under attack by the enemy Their hearts will break for those that they minister to. For those who reject the gospel. For those who receive it and struggle. They hurt with those who hurt. They rejoice with those who rejoice. And they need not only our financial support, but our prayer support. All right. So there are some things that take place here. As the people joyfully give. Each of them represented by their leaders, by the tribes. Over these 12 days, they bring these things in. And there are three things that we see clearly here. From the giving of the leaders of the oxen and the ox carts, to the uh, specifics given in the the repeated investment in, in what comes next in the worship. Notice this. Joyful giving allowed the people of God to provide for the work of God. This allowed them to provide for the work of God. God gives some the privilege of doing the work of ministry. And He gives others the privilege of supporting that, providing for that. One cannot happen without the other. Mark this down. Some are appointed to minister. All are called to support. Some are appointed to minister. All are called to support. As Keith read for you earlier from Romans 10... Uh, verses 13 to 17 how can they believe if they don't hear and how can they hear if someone doesn't preach the gospel to them and how can they preach if they're not sent somebody has to send them that's the role of everyone for everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved but if we don't send them they're not going to be able to hear and believe Listen to this from 3 John, verses 5 through 8. There's only one chapter there in 3 John. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, these who are coming to the churches that you don't know personally, but they've come, they're brothers in Christ, they're testifying to the gospel. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Interesting, they're not taking money from the Gentiles. They're not taking money from the Gentiles here as equivalent to unbeliever, not the literal Gentiles, but those who are outside of Christ. They're not looking to get money from the world to minister to the world. They're looking for support from those who already know Christ, who can give out of the abundance of their heart from what they've received. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Verse 8, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Their joyful giving allowed them to provide for the work of God. Notice also that their joyful giving allowed them to participate in the worship of God. To participate in the worship of God. I read Matthew 6, 19-21 earlier for you. Jesus makes it very clear in that passage. You can mark this down. Giving is a reflection of the heart. Giving is a reflection of the heart. Verse 21 tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Therefore, when we give to God, it reflects the priority of our heart. Giving is a reflection of the heart. King David, we read from 1 Chronicles 29. You don't have to turn there, but just a handful of chapters before that. David messes up big time, again. In First Chronicles 21, uh, here we're told that the, the devil incites him to do this later on. The Lord takes credit for it, which is another amazing concept in looking at God's sovereignty. He's not afraid to take responsibility for the bad things that happen in life. But in 1 Chronicles 21, we see that the devil incites David to take a census of the people. We're in a passage that's all about, or in a book that's all about census, when God commands it. But when David takes this census, it's for his own purposes. I want to know how strong we are. I want to know how great my kingdom is. Not because God is great. So God brings a plague and punishment and... and uh, David falls on the mercy of God, and God commands him to give a, a sacrifice. It goes down to this threshing floor, as God commands to offer this sacrifice to remove the plague. And Arona or uh, Ornan, depending on your translation, says, "King, you can have it. You can have the whole thing. I'll, I'll give it to you, so you can offer it to the Lord." But because giving is a reflection of the heart, David says in verse 24, No way. But I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not offer to the Lord anything that costs me nothing. Because He's too valuable. If I give something that costs nothing, kind of re-gifting, if you will, it says something about how I value God. When I give lightly, I value God lightly. If I'm stingy in my giving, I value the things of this world more than I do Him. It's a reflection of the heart. Their joyful giving allows them to participate in the worship of God. They had to bring these sacrifices. They had to bring sin offerings and fellowship offerings. Because this purpose in giving connects them not only with the work. They gave for the work. They're giving now for the worship connects them with God's priorities in that way. Last, we see that their joyful giving allows them to partake in the Word of God. To partake in the Word of God. Look at the end of the the chapter. Verse uh, 89. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, now remember what's happened here. They build the tabernacle. Moses has anointed and consecrated it. We see in the other narrative that he's anointed the priests so that they can do the work of receiving these sacrifices. In the next chapter, he'll anoint and, and or not anoint, but he'll uh, he'll ordain the Levites. But now, having put all this stuff in place, after the people have given all these things. When Moses entered the tent of meeting, the dwelling, to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover, your translation may say the mercy seat, on the ark of the covenant law. In this way the Lord spoke to him. Now the Lord has been speaking to Moses. He's been giving him commands. So there's something unique here about this Moment following the establishment of the tabernacle, following the consecration, following these gifts of dedication, and that now Moses in the tent of meeting comes to the Lord, and the Lord enthroned between the cherubim, symbolically on the Ark of Covenant, in reality in heaven, the Lord who is great and mighty, who is beyond and above and other now dwells among his people. And he speaks to his servant as a friend speaks to a friend. There's an intimacy in this picture. There is a uniqueness in God coming to his people. In their giving, they're able to partake in this They've participated in the establishment of the tabernacle. They've participated in the work and the worship, and now they receive the Word of God. I suspect that perhaps this is when we see the book of Leviticus play out. That's my speculation. Notice this what is received is far greater than what is given. What is received is far greater than what is given. They are giving to God gold, silver, grain, animals. Somebody tell me where they got that stuff. From God. It's all His. They're giving to Him what He gave to them. And in a practical reality, they got all that gold and, and animals and stuff. The sheep they probably had already. When they left Egypt, when God said, hey, Egyptians, you're going to give the Israelites all your stuff. They walked out, held out their hands, and people are just like giving them large screen TVs, right? It's just everything they got. They're just pouring it on the Israelites as they leave town. They were slaves. They didn't have gold and silver. God provides for them so that they can give back to God. So they do. But what they receive, they could could very easily have said, man, we just got this stuff. I lived my whole life as a slave. I've been making bricks for Pharaoh's uh, work and building these cities. I ain't giving up my stuff. God provided me with this. I should be thankful that I'm wealthy now when I wasn't before. I can't waste it. I can't squander it. But they gave. And what they received in return was the person and presence of God Himself. God spoke to them. He gives them His Word, His commands. Psalm 119.72. Psalm 119 is the only chapter in the Bible that is longer than the one we're reading today. Interesting, isn't it? Here's a chapter about giving, participating in the work and the worship and the Word of God. Psalm 119 is all about the greatness of God's Word, of His law, of His commands. It's a love song David is writing for God's law. Psalm 119.72, he says this, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. A little later, in verse 127, he says, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold, The king has all the wealth you can imagine. But what matters, what he receives from God in the person and presence and word of God, the heart of God revealed through his word is far greater than tongue or pen could ever tell. Far greater than all the wealth of this world. And David says, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. This is the point. Let's close with this idea. Giving to God is a covenant expression for His people. No amount of giving, no offering, no sacrifice can purchase a relationship with God. It is by His grace that we're saved through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And not in any way by our works or merit. So there's no room for boasting. Yet for those who have tasted of the goodness of God and received His grace by that faith, giving to the Lord out of our deep love and gratitude is a right and natural response. Because our heart is expressed in the things we treasure. Giving to God joyfully and faithfully is an expression of our worship. The attributing of worth. That's what worship means. We attribute worth to God. Our joyful, faithful giving is an expression of that. That He is our treasure. That we value Him above earthly wealth. In the same way, giving generously to others is a reflection of the reality of Christ in our lives. That we've received freely from Him and so we freely give to others. In this way, our giving shows our commitment to the greatest commandment to love the Lord with everything we have. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our giving connects us with the heart and values of the Lord. Joyful giving invests God's people in God's priorities. Therefore, let us give generously. With cheerful hearts. That we might provide for the work of God. Participate in the worship of God. And partake in the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I never thought I'd be so excited about preaching number seven. But you are worth so much more than we could possibly ever imagine. Lord, I pray that you would burden our hearts to give you our very lives, to give you all that we are, and to express that by the way we handle our earthly treasure as we give to You. Lord, remind us that we can't, we can't buy Your favor. We can't buy a miracle. We can't gain points with You by giving to a ministry, to this church, or to anything else. But because You are great, and because You are merciful and gracious, and have poured Yourself out, so that the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God Lord because we have tasted of this grace how can we do anything other than give you our hearts everything every part of us now Lord receive our worship that you might be glorified and we might be changed We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.